Well, we are talking about being men of God. In fact, being quality men of God. And as we come to this series, what birthed this series, the, the motivation for this series was thinking about our lives and thinking about the idea of what are the, the tangible, what are the, the practical, real life, in your kitchen type attributes that you need to focus on, that I need to focus on as a godly man. And where I landed was 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And you may be thinking to yourself, yes, but aren't those the qualifications for a pastor? And I would say, yes, they are the qualifications for a pastor, or as Timothy uses the word overseer, which is where we get our word pastor eventually. They are that, yet I would also push back on that because I think sometimes the default is we get there in our daily Bible reading or we come across a passage like that and we think to ourselves, well, this is great. We're thankful that we have pastors that are qualified to serve us and then we move on. But I want to change your perspective on that passage because I would say, except for the areas of the giftedness in preaching and teaching, that as we come across each and every one of those attributes in those lists, that we as men of God should all say together, yes, we want to be that type of man. We want to see that attribute in our lives. We want to make sure that we're managing our household well. We want to make sure that we are faithful to our wives. We want to make sure that we are, like we're going to talk about this morning, above reproach. Above reproach. It's one of those attributes that sounds great. And I had imagined to a man, if I were to ask all of you in the room, would you like to be known as a man who's above reproach? You would all quickly answer, yes, of course I would. But if I were to ask you, okay, well, are you a man who is known as being above reproach? Maybe you'd be a little bit slower to answer. Or maybe some would say, well, what do you mean by above reproach? And in what areas of my life are you talking about being above reproach? I'm above reproach on my taxes. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't hide anything on that. I don't take more exemptions than I should. Uh, I file on time. I pay what I owe. I don't cheat on that. I'm above reproach on my taxes. Or maybe you think, you know, I'm above reproach in my work ethic. My employer can trust me. I'm going to do a good job. I'm going to show up on time. I'm not going to leave early. I'm going to make sure that my work is quality and I'm going to work hard. And so I'm above reproach at work. Or maybe you think, you know, I'm I'm above reproach when it comes to the big sins. I've never murdered anybody. I've never uh, stolen anything. If the police showed up at my house, they'd have nothing that they could arrest me on. So I'm above reproach when it comes to those things. But then maybe you're thinking to yourself, but don't ask my wife if I'm above reproach in my marriage. Or don't take a look at my internet browser over the last week to see if I've been above reproach there. Or don't ask me how I'm doing with my anger in dealing with my kids or dealing with my commute. In those areas, maybe I'm not as much above reproach. Or maybe your thoughts went to comparison. And you say, well, I'm above reproach when I compare myself to some other people that I know. Maybe you think to yourself, you know, I haven't committed any major crimes, so I'm better than this person in being above reproach. Or you think to yourself, you know, I haven't cheated on my wife, so I'm better than than this person that I know in being above reproach. Or maybe you say, you know what, I go to church, so I'm better than those that I know that don't go to church, so I'm above reproach in that. Or maybe you say, you know what, I didn't vote for her. And you know what? This next time I'm not going to vote for her. So there you go. I'm above reproach. Being above reproach, it's it's the first of the attributes in both 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And I think Paul's intentional in that because being above reproach is the umbrella attribute. And so when you look at the rest of this list, all of the rest of the attributes fall under this umbrella category of being above reproach. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 says, the saying is trustworthy. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, and I would say now a man of God, must be above reproach. In the parallel passage, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he gives the qualifications here. If anyone is, and the first one there is above reproach. It's a word that we don't use, a phrase that we don't use too often today. We don't talk about reproach. We don't talk about being above reproach unless we're in the circles of Christianity, but it's such a great phrase. In the original, it was one word in the Greek, and it meant to, to not be able to be held by anything that there was no charge that could stick to you. You were the Teflon man when it came to your morality, when it came to your integrity. There's nothing that could be unturned. There's nothing that, that was in your closet, no skeletons in your closet that could be pulled out. This is what it was to be a man who was above reproach. Richard Baxter, a Puritan pastor, once confronted the, the other pastors of his time on their hypocrisy. Men who were supposed to be above reproach. And he called them out for their lack of that. And listen to what he says here. And maybe some of us fall into this category. He says this. He says, watch yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others. Or lest you be guilty of that which daily you condemn. Would you make it your work to magnify God? And after you've done so, dishonor him as much as any other. Would you proclaim Christ's governing power and yet condemn it and rebel yourselves? Will you preach his laws and yet willfully break them? If sin is evil, why do you live in it? If it's not, why do you dissuade men from it? If sin is dangerous, how dare you venture on it? If it's not dangerous, why do you tell men that it is? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them and put them into such frights without a cause? In other words, Baxter is confronting a man who teaches one thing, who encourages one thing, who exhorts one thing, but yet his life doesn't measure up to what he's proclaiming. In Baxter's description, this is a man who is not above reproach. This is a man with with plenty to bring against him, and this is a man that none of us want to be like. Well, to be above reproach, what does it look like? What is it, just if I were to summarize it in general, is it to live a life of perfection? And I would say quickly, in answer to that question, absolutely not, right? I mean, even the Apostle Paul said that he was the chief among sinners, yes? It's not to live a life of perfection. It's to live a life wherein you could look at a fellow brother in Christ and you could tell him, follow me, imitate me. Imitate me, like Paul said, as I imitate Christ. It's to live a life that to the best of your knowledge, there's no area in your life that if it were to be examined under a magnifying glass that you would be found guilty of any sin. It's to be rigorous about putting sin to death in your life, confessing and repenting when you find it in your life. Yes, it's an essential quality for an elder, but we shouldn't stop there. This is an essential quality for a man to be a quality man of God by God's standard. And so you and I have to be living to strive to be above reproach. Well, this morning, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, it's, it's not out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, but the reason we're going to Daniel chapter 6 is because I, I don't know of a clearer picture of a man who represents what it is to be above reproach 
than what we find in Daniel chapter 6. I love the first six chapters of Daniel. I love the rest of it too. It just gets a little murky, a little confusing after chapter six. But I love the first six chapters of Daniel. I used to preach them to our youth groups over and over again because it's, it's such a great example of resolve, such a great example of holy living in difficult circumstances. If you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel is taken captive by the Babylonians along with a, a few of his friends and, and others from Israel. And they end up in a very difficult circumstance even right away and, and their, their faith is tested and their commitment to the Lord is tested and yet time and time again through the first six chapters, they, they pass the test. They stand up against the most powerful rulers in the, the known world at the time and they refuse to bow the knee. They refuse to give in to idolatry. They refuse to abandon their God over and over and over again. Through this process, God blesses them and honors them, and Daniel eventually ends up as basically the number two in Belshazzar's kingdom. But that doesn't last long because the same night he's given the number two position, Belshazzar is taken out by the invasion of the Medes and the Persians. And it's King Darius who comes in under the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the attack with the rest of his army to drive out the Babylonians. And it's that very night. You remember the handwriting on the wall? You've been weighed, measured, and found lacking to Belshazzar. Well, then the Medes and the Persians come in. They remove uh, Belshazzar, and then they set up their empire there in Babylon. And that's where chapter 6 picks up. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, we don't use that word often, but it's a word that meant governor. He's trying to delegate authority and power throughout his empire, his kingdom, because it was such a massive territory. To set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, over these 120 governors, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps, these governors, should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. And so Daniel is put into this position of power, which is nothing new for him. He had been given authority, given power, given prestige in the past. What's different this time around is that those that he's given authority over really don't like the fact that this foreigner, not even one of the the people that they had just conquered, but an Israelite, was now put into a position of power and authority over them. And they had to give an account to him. And so they're looking at themselves and, and thinking to themselves and discussing amongst themselves, why is this man in a position of power and authority over us? Who is he? He's not even a Persian or a Mede. He's not even a Babylonian. He's one that the Babylonians conquered. And now our king sets him over us. This is not right. This can't stand. And in fact, that's the conclusion that they reach. Look at verse four. Then the high officials and these governors sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Let me ask you a question. If 120 of your worst enemies were to put your life under a magnifying glass, would you come through unscathed like Daniel did? This is phenomenal, men. And the Bible's clear. The reason why? Because he was faithful. They could have said because he was above reproach. 120 men who are just jealous beyond reason looking for anything they could possibly grab to disqualify him from his position. Any skeleton they could drag out of his closet and bring before the king and say, king, you don't want this guy in authority because look at what type of man he is. And when they turn his life upside down, they find nothing, diddly squat, zero, that they could bring before the king to charge him with. 
To live a life above reproach is to live a life that's ready for that level of an inspection at any moment. But I would take it further. To live a life above reproach is to live a life ready for the inspection of our Lord and our God who is omniscient, who is omnipresent at any time and at any moment. Because the reality is you and I, we live our lives before the watchful eyes of God every single second of our day. And so we need to live a life before him confident that to the best of our knowledge that we would be found blameless by the one whose account of us matters the most. That's point number one for us this morning. It's this, live with confident integrity. Live with confident integrity. My daughter, love her to death. She's got me wrapped around her finger, but she struggles with the concept of cleaning her room. We'll say, Annie, you need to go clean your room. She'll go upstairs, she'll go in her room, and she'll be up there for 30 or 40 minutes, and we'll say, what in the world is going on? We knew it was bad, but we didn't think it was this bad, right? And we'll go up there, and we'll find that she's not cleaning her room. She's playing with the toys that were on the floor. She got distracted when she was trying to clean her room. So we'll say, Annie, clean your room. Finish cleaning your room. So finally, she'll come back downstairs. She'll say, Mom, Dad, my room is clean. We'll say, is it really clean? And for a while there, and and thankfully at this point we've broken her of this habit, but we would go upstairs and we would find that, yeah, the floor was absolutely clean. There was nothing there. But then we would go over to the closet and we would open the closet. And we would find that the way that Annie would clean her room is she would take all of the stuff that was on the floor and she would shove it in the corner of her closet and she would shut the door. Not realizing that mom and dad were smart enough to walk over to the sliding closet door and open it up and, and inspect the inside of the closet as well. Well, men, sometimes we think that we're good because we clean up our lives the way that my daughter cleans up her room. We take the sins in our lives and we shove them in the corner of our life and we shut the door and we show up to church or we show up to MBS and, and we put on a, a facade with the men that are around the table and we think, you know what, I'm, the, the, I'm good because all these men think highly of me. They think that I'm above reproach. But the reality is, guys, that our opinion of you matters nothing. And the one whose opinion does matter knows where the deep recesses and corners of your life lie and what you've put in there. And so what we want to do is we want to be ready for that white glove inspection from the Lord himself. What does that look like? How do we do that? Let me suggest a couple things. Number one, keep short accounts with the Lord. Keep short accounts with the Lord daily. At the end of the day, and I would say even throughout the day, but at least at the end of the day, look back over your day and ask yourself, okay, how have I fallen short in living a life that's above reproach? Where do I need to confess? Where do I need to repent? Where have I sinned? Where have I done what is wrong that I'm aware of that I can bring these things before the Lord and confess and ask for his forgiveness? And men, we can have confidence that he will forgive us in that. Second, I would say this, ask the Lord to reveal your blind spots. Where are those areas that you're not aware where you struggle? Those areas that, that maybe you do have that dark corner of your life where you're, there's some sins that have been swept in there, but, but you're not even really cognizant of that. You're not aware of that. Third, don't settle for better than someone else. Don't play the, the horizontal comparison game when you're striving to be above reproach. It's not about what somebody else is doing or not doing. It's not about being better than somebody else. It's, it's about being acceptable before the Lord and measuring up to what he has called you to. And on that, you might say, okay, but Pastor PJ, you told us it's not about perfection. He's called me to perfection. I would say, yes, it's not about perfection. 
But man, like I said, if you confess and, and ask for forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven. And then you know what you can do the very next minute? Set your life towards living above reproach again. And later on, if you fall, you confess, ask for forgiveness, you get back up and you set your life towards living above reproach again. And so don't settle for better than someone else. Fourth, not in priority, certainly not in priority, but fourth, I would say be in the word. Be in the word daily. If we're gonna live with integrity, men, we've gotta make sure that we are taking in what is gonna transform us. And that's God's word. With our college group right now, we're going through the book of James and James says very clearly, he says, let no one say when he is being tempted that I am being tempted by God for God himself is not tempted and tempts no one with evil, right? But then what does he say? He said, but each man is tempted when he is carried away in his heart with his own lust, his own desires, when he's lured and enticed himself from what is what within him. Remember what Jesus said. He said, it's not what's outside of a man that defiles him, but it's what's inside of a man that defiles him. For out of the heart, he says, that's where theft and adultery and murder and covetousness proceeds from. So men, if we want to be men of integrity, we got to drive out the junk in our lives and replace it with what is good and what will transform us as the Holy Spirit will take us and, and turn our lives inside out and shake out all the, the garbage and, and replace it with what is good and what is right. And so we need to be men of the word. You think about that list in Philippians chapter four, verse eight, where Paul says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, whatever is worthy of praise, if there's anything that's excellent, he says, think on these things. Man, if we wanna be thinking on these things and, and living lives marked by those categories, we need to be taking those things in by being in the word. Finally, another way that we can do this, live with account, confident integrity is, is to find accountability in your life. Find men who will like Pastor Scott said this past week, if you're with us on our retreat, if not, he said, men who will get in your kitchen. In other words, they're not gonna stand at the front door and knock on the door of your life and say, everything okay in there? No, they're gonna get in your kitchen. They're gonna get into the, the place where real life takes place and they're gonna say, hey, how are you really doing? What's really going on here? Find a brother in Christ that's gonna do that. That's gonna help you with the, the, the other thing that I said about revealing your blind spots. Find a man who's gonna be able to come alongside you and say, hey, brother, I don't know if you're aware of the sin in your life, but this is something that I've seen that I'm concerned about. Daniel's life, it leaves nothing for these men to find. It's, it's amazing. 120 guys saying, we're going to take this guy down, and they find nothing against him except for one thing, and that's his relationship with Christ. This is the only thing that they could bring a charge against him is in his relationship with Christ, relationship with God. Daniel chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. May that be said of us. Verse six, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, we are all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any God or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, the king Darius, therefore king Darius signed the document and injunction. 
Every time I read this passage, it makes my blood boil a little bit. Because here come these, these men, these 120, and they come at the, these, these suck-ups, these sycophants, right? And they come before the king with this fake praise and, and, and honor, all out of a desire to take Daniel down. And they go before the king and they say, king, live forever. And they flatter him with all these pretty words. And they say, king, you know what? You're so great. You should sign a law that says no one can worship anyone but you for 30 days. And the king, being just a, a pagan himself, a fallen man, his flesh is appealed to here. He has no idea what they're really trying to do, what they're really trying to accomplish. And that's clear from the rest of the text. But he signs the law. He says, great, this sounds good to me. Let's sign the law. Let's do this thing. And it says there that the law of the Medes and the Persians could not be revoked. So even after the king found out, even if he had wanted to issue another law that said, just kidding, I changed my mind, it, it, he couldn't undo the initial decree. These men knew exactly what they were doing. This was a, a trap that was set up for Daniel. And they knew that he was such a man of integrity, such a man of consistency, such a man of faithfulness, that they knew that he was not going to obey this law of the king. And they knew that he was going to end up in the den of lions. Well, they're not the only ones who knew that the law had been signed. Because we pick up in verse 10 and look what it says. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Men, living above reproach doesn't look for an out when the heat gets turned up in our lives. Being a man of above reproach means doing what you know is right regardless of the cost that you might incur for doing it. So our second point this morning is this, be driven by the fear of God. Be driven by the fear of God. I love the first part of verse 10. When Daniel knew, that's intentional that the author put that there, right? So that we're aware that, that, that Daniel is doing this fully aware of the consequences. When the king made a law, it would have been signed publicly. It would have been read aloud. It would have been posted everywhere in the kingdom. So Daniel was aware of what he was facing if he continued in his relationship with the Lord the way that he always had. Daniel knew that the lion's den was waiting for him. And yet he continued. But look back at, at verse 10 again. When Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber op open toward Jerusalem, which was commonplace in that time they would have prayed towards the temple because they were away from the temple so the windows would have been open towards Jerusalem so that he could pray towards the temple he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God to stick it to the king is that what it says to show off to everybody because he was prideful is that what it says in the text no what does it say as what he had done previously. Daniel's a model of consistency here. Daniel knows the law is signed, but you know what? He doesn't even look at the law and go, well, you know what? I'm gonna show that king what I think of his law. No, Daniel looks at that law and says, that law is ri ridiculous. It has no bearing on my life. I don't need to listen to this king. I'm under orders from a far superior king. This means nothing to me. I'm going to continue to live my life the exact same way that I've always lived my life. And so he goes up and he does exactly as he had always done. I know a lot of you have been in the military. If you had charges from a five-star general, orders from a five-star general, and a private came up to you to try to change those orders, would you give that private the time of day? No, of course not. 
Well, Darius is the private in this equation. God's the five-star general. See, the fear of God is consistent. It's, it, it's, it has to be consistent in our lives. It's the key to living above reproach daily. Because we understand that no matter the circumstance that arises, we fear God and we fear falling short of, of his standards more than we fear falling short of the, the standards of man. And so if we maintain this mindset, if we fear God above all else, it's going to be key to allowing us to continue to obey him regardless of the threats at work. The threats from your boss that if you don't do something that he wants you to do, you may lose your job. Well, okay, but yeah, I know what you're asking me to do is wrong and I fear God more than I fear you. It's going to allow you to continue to obey him regardless of your circumstances at home. Maybe with an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving children and the difficulty that can arise there and yet you're going to fear God and refuse to compromise in your relationship with the Lord, your standards that you've set for your family regardless of the, the amount of conflict that it might create. Or it's also going to help you continue to obey him regardless of who's in office. Regardless of who wins the next election. Regardless of how many of our religious liberties continue to be infringed upon and taken away from us, we're going to continue to resolve, just like Daniel did, to fear God. It's going to allow you to continue to obey him regardless, period. Daniel continues to obey him because he feared God more than he feared this king. But what happens is the, these men, these 120, they knew what Daniel was going to do, didn't they? Why? Because he had always done that. As he had done previously, they knew where he was going to be. And so they're counting on that. And so they watch and they wait. The law is signed and, and I'm, maybe there are 120 of them are sitting underneath the window of his house waiting to hear his prayers. And sure enough, Daniel goes up and he plays right into their hands. So they go up and they go to the king's house and they sing, say, hey, King Darius, didn't you sign this law? Well, yes, I did sign this law. Oh, well, there's a guy named Daniel who doesn't listen to you, king. And king, the law's irrevocable. You've got to now throw him into the lion's den. And we know from later in the text, the king didn't want to do this. And he was actually grieved to the point that after he, he takes Daniel into the lion's den, he fasts all night long and does not sleep because of his concern for Daniel. But he's bound by the law. Again, the conniving of these men against Daniel. They knew exactly what they were doing here. It was calculated. The world can be a calculating place against Christians. And so the king in verse 16, commands, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. Now, I want to stop there because I want us to, to see, before we rush to the end, and, and the rest of the story on the felt board that all of us remember, and we rejoice and we cheer when, when everything works out, notice that initially here, it doesn't look like Daniel's going to have the Hollywood ending. And I want to point out the fact that sometimes our integrity Sometimes living driven by the fear of the Lord, sometimes living above reproach is going to land you in the lion's den. And guys, this is the same den that we find down in verse 24, where it says, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It's the same pit. It's the same lions. This was the, the, the execution chamber of the day. This was the electric chair. This was the hangman's noose. They took the ones that they wished to kill and they threw them in a pit of lions who they underfed to make sure that they were famished and hungry. And that's where Daniel is headed. And so I want us to understand that sometimes when we make decisions to live above reproach, it's not as though God is going to respond by saving the day immediately for us. Sometimes we're going to be thrown into the lion's den. Sometimes you might lose that job. 
Sometimes you might lose that relationship, that friendship. Sometimes you might face that financial hardship in your life. And we've got to know that ahead of time. And we've got to be confident in our relationship with Christ. We've got to say, no matter what, I'm going to continue to be faithful and live above reproach because I trust God no matter what may come at me in this world, no matter what the outcome is. In other words, we're not living above reproach as long as God makes our life a bed of roses in exchange. We're living above reproach because we're confident in him above all else. In fact, that's point number three this morning. It's this, stay the course, confident in Christ. Stay the course, confident in Christ. Sometimes when we encounter opposition, we're, we're, we're out. We're like, okay, I'm done. This is too hard. This is too much. God, I didn't sign up for this. You know, there's a great difference between me and Tiger Woods. It comes as a shock to many of you, I know. There's a lot of differences between me and Tiger Woods. Some of them, I'm very thankful that there are differences between me and Tiger Woods. But Tiger and I both grew up playing golf, not together, not anywhere near the same talent level either. But we both grew up playing golf. And at times, both of us dreamed of being one day on the, the PGA Tour. And I'm sure he played some junior tournaments as well. And, and I started to play some junior tournaments. But what I quickly realized when I was playing the junior tournaments that is one of the main differences between Tiger and I is for me, it wasn't worth it to work hard enough to be better than everybody else out there. For Tiger, it was. For Tiger, it was a challenge. There's somebody in front of me. There's an obstacle in front of me. I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to drive harder because of what I'm after and what's there at the end. For me, I, I ran up against guys that were better than me and I just realized, you know what? The game wasn't fun anymore. So I stopped playing competitively and I was satisfied to just be a weekend hacker for the rest of my life. See, men, sometimes when, when we come up against obstacles in Christianity, we, we fall back into the mindset that I had with golf. It's like, well, you know what? It's, it's not worth it to try to persevere through this. I'm just gonna sit back and be a cultural Christian for the rest of my life. As long as Christianity is comfortable for me, as long as I don't have to face anything that's too difficult when I call myself a Christian, then I, I'm good. I'll show up at church, I'll show up at men's Bible study, but don't ask me to get too involved because once you ask me to get too involved and this starts costing me something, man, you know what? I just don't know that it's worth it for me. Men, again, sometimes being a Christian is gonna land you in the lion's den. And we need to go into the lion's den confident in Christ. I wish this was developed a little bit more for us there, what, what it, Daniel's interaction was with the king or with the guys that were bringing him to drop him into the lion's den. But I think we find something that helps us earlier in the book of Daniel in chapter three. Daniel had these three friends. You remember these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel, we believe, was, was out of town, maybe on the king's business at some point during what was going on here. But Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He sets up this 90 foot by nine foot wide golden statue on the plain of Dura in Babylon there. And he gathers everybody together. And he says, hey, you're gonna hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre. And, the, and it was just this, this awful noise of music that was gonna play all at the same time. And he said, when you hear this, everybody fall down and worship this statue. Well, the music plays and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stay standing. And just like with Daniel, there's some Babylonians there and, and they lean over to the king and they say, hey, king, do you see those three guys? They're still standing. Didn't you say everybody was to fall down? So the king calls these three men before him and he looks at them and he says, I'm gonna give you another chance at this. When you hear the music, you need to fall down and worship the golden image that I have set up. And the three men look back at the king and they say, 
they say, king, we don't need to, to answer you in this matter, but you know what? We will for your sake in this. And they say, king, we're not going to bow down and worship that golden image that you've set up. Here's why. Because our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace and he will deliver us from you. You see the, the juxtaposition there. The fiery furnace was the lion's den for these three. And they say to the king, king, our God whom we serve, he's able to save us even from this furnace that's so hot that even when the men that eventually throw them in approach the furnace, they die on the outside of the furnace. That's how hot this thing is. They say, king, our God can preserve our lives inside that. He's able to do that. But look, king, he will deliver us from you. That's this confidence in God's deliverance that's going to allow you and I to persevere even when living above reproach lands us in the lion's den. Knowing that even if we, our bones are crushed and we're devoured by the lions before we hit the bottom of the pit, that God is still going to be faithful and deliver us. Because even if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had died in the furnace, they were still going to have been delivered by God from Nebuchadnezzar. See, our hope is, is too often so minimal, so little. Our hope, our desires are so small because they're confined to being comfortable here on earth in our Christianity. Instead of realizing, guys, there is a comfort that far surpasses anything that this world can offer us. And, and so when we compromise and when we give in and, and when we abandon being men of integrity, men who live above reproach, in order to avoid the, the difficult times on this earth, we give up so much eternally that will make a, a split second of comfort on this earth seem like it's nothing. Make an eternity of pleasure on this earth seem like it's Nothing. So we need to stay the course confident in Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning, are you ready for that? To persevere, to remain above reproach? Are you ready to lose your job, to maintain your integrity before the Lord? Are you ready to see conflict arise in your marriage in order to remain a man of integrity before the Lord and to live above reproach before the Lord? Are you ready to lose friendships in order to be a man of integrity before the Lord? Are you prepared to face financial hardship in order to live above reproach before the Lord? Are you prepared to lose freedoms and rights in order to live above reproach before the Lord? Are you prepared to follow Daniel's lead even? To go to the point of death, to maintain your integrity and to live above reproach before the Lord. Because here's the reality, men. For as many Daniels, Shadrachs, Meshachs, and Abednegoes as there are, there are just as many, if not countless more, whose names fill the pages of Fox's Book of Martyrs, who were men above reproach, women above reproach, who refused to compromise, who refused to bow the knee, and they ended up tied to the stake and burned alive for their relationship with Christ. Unless you think that that's a, a, a practice of years gone by, it's still happening today. It's just not happening in our backyard yet. It doesn't change the fact that we need to be ready for that. We want to be the, the post-resurrection Peter, not the pre 
crucifixion Peter. We want to be Peter on the day of Pentecost, standing up and leveling the charge against those Jews, saying, you delivered this man up to lawless men who crucified him. Not the pre-crucifixion Peter who's denying that he's a follower of Christ to a slave girl. Man, to live above reproach in a world with nothing but reproach for the Savior that you follow is going to lead to, to trials and tribulations. It's going to lead to suffering in this life. It's going to lead to opposition. And so the resolve has to be there. We have to steel ourselves and prepare ourselves and ready ourselves to be men who are willing to live above, above reproach regardless of what it's going to cost us. This umbrella quality of living above reproach, it should be the aim of every man every single morning that you get out of bed. You get out of bed this morning, God, help me to live this day as a man above reproach, as a man of integrity. Tomorrow morning you get up, God, help me to live this day as a man above reproach, as a man of integrity. Set yourself to live with integrity, driven by that fear of God, confident in Christ every single day. This is the foundation quality of the, the man of God. We need to be men like Daniel, men of integrity. We must be men above reproach. And we're gonna need the Lord in that. So let's go to him right now and pray for that. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for such a, a vivid example of this life that we see in Daniel. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be men like that, men whose lives could be taken and turned inside out, shaken, and they would find nothing to charge us with except for our relationship with Christ. God, make us men like that, regardless of the cost. Lord, we are, are aware that our faith is going to cost us. You yourself said, if the world hated you, it's going to hate us. So many times in, in the New Testament letters in 1 Peter and other places, God, we read about the, the inevitability of persecution. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though this was something that was strange or foreign. Lord, help us to be men, and right now, Lord, may we be stealing ourselves, preparing ourselves for that opposition when it comes, so that when it arises, we can be just like Daniel, that we don't skip a beat, that we don't need to confer with anyone, that we don't need to, to, to step back and, and wonder what we should do in response. We know what we should do in response. We know that we should continue to walk in faithful obedience to what you have called us to. confident that you will deliver us no matter what this world does to us. Lord, I pray for the men in this room that right now are facing that opposition, that are facing the conflict, that are facing the, the difficulty at work. I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would bring other brothers in their immediate context around them to pray for them, to encourage them, to lift them up, to check in with them, Lord, to hold them accountable to being men above reproach. God, I pray that you would use their testimony and their faithfulness to you as a great symbol, as a great witness to those that are around them, that are watching them. That they would see their resolve to stay faithful to you. And even as it says in, in 1 Peter as well, Lord, that they would say, what is going on? Why do you have such a, a confidence? Why do you have such a hope in the face of opposition? God, use our lives to do great things for your kingdom as we strive to be men of integrity. Help us in that end, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.